that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, I challenge you as you go throughout the Christmas season over the next few weeks, as you're shopping or you're just out and about, keep an ear out for what music is playing. It seems that no matter where you go, there's Christmas music on. And amazingly, no matter how secular the culture may be, there's an echo of the gospel virtually everywhere we go during this season. And this mystery that we just read, that God himself took on human flesh to redeem a people for himself from among the Gentiles, every nation, rings out during the Christmas season. And not only do I challenge you to listen specifically for the Christmas music, for the gospel contained within, but listen more specifically for how often the nations are mentioned within those Christmas hymns. In fact, we just sang a couple of different hymns in which the nations were mentioned, if you paid attention. In fact, some of my favorite Christmas hymns make it expressly clear that God's purpose is to redeem the nations through Christ Jesus. Think about Joy to the World, for example, written by Isaac Watts. We sing, He rules the world with grace and truth and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. This word proof here is saying that He makes the nations display the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. What about Hark, the herald angels sing? Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Or, come thou expected Jesus by Charles Wesley. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. I think it's incredible that virtually anybody with even a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament would just assume that God's primary dealings and God's primary purpose in the Old Testament was to deal with the people of Israel. One specific people in one tiny nation thousands of miles away from us. But the mystery that is unveiled here in Ephesians chapter 3 is clear that this is not God's primary purpose. But instead, as I attempt to do today, 
I want to walk us through a few passages in the Old Testament that shed light on this mystery that has been revealed to us. In fact, when I think about this unveiling of this mystery that Christ has made the Gentiles an heir, it reminds me of one of the most remarkable passages, I think, in all of Scripture in Luke chapter 24, when there are some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, this stranger appears before them and starts to walk alongside them. They start to talk about the events that's happened in the life of this crucified, claiming king of the Jews. And all of a sudden, this stranger says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then listen to this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. (laughs) To walk alongside the Lord himself and to let him go throughout the Bible and say, that's about me, that's about me, this is how that's fulfilled. And then afterwards, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us? on the road, and open the scriptures to us. Well, we may be tempted to think that because Jesus himself is not in the flesh with us, that we will never experience this kind of burning in our heart, this kind of joy of understanding the scriptures and how they point to Jesus. But here's the truth. We have the very word of God itself. And we can understand this mystery that's been unveiled to us through revelation, as Paul says. And where do we see that mystery unveiled? Where is that revelation? In the Word of God. And so my task this morning is that I would like to walk along the Scriptures with you. And show you Jesus. Show you this purpose for the nations. So that our hearts might burn and glorify the Lord Jesus. Now I may not be able to do this as well as Jesus himself did it with the disciples. I once heard a preacher, uh, or once read a preacher say, and I don't know who it was, it's probably Spurgeon. Whenever preachers don't know where the quote comes from, they just say it was Spurgeon because he probably said it, so I'll just go with that. But I once read that a lot of people can preach a better Jesus, a lot of people can preach Jesus better than me, but no one can preach a better Jesus. And so that's my goal this morning, is to preach the glory of Jesus throughout the Scripture. So let's walk down the road together. I'm going to show you three particular sections that show the the glories of this mystery. The promise, the prophecies, and the prestige. Now, prestige is the act of revealing the final act of a magic trick. And so, in the end, I want to show you uh, behind the curtain. I want you to see how this mystery is unveiled in Christ. And Lord willing, unlike when you actually learn the trick... When you actually see how the magic trick is done, and oftentimes it's disappointing, like, oh, I get it now. This prestige is glorious. There's nothing better. And so I'm going to walk through quite a few scriptures with you. Don't have to turn to all these. Just listen. Just sit and listen as we go through and we see that the Great Commission, God's heart for the nations, didn't start at the end of Matthew, but it started at the very beginning of the scriptures. All the way back In Genesis chapter 1, God gives a promise and a purpose for his people. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 
God says to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gives the first commission to his created people to have dominion over the earth and to multiply throughout the land. The purpose is that they would be image bearers to all of creation. Now, if you were alive in Moses' day when he was writing this and retelling what God had did under the inspiration of the Scripture, you probably would have known that in the ancient world, when a king conquered another land, he would put up a statue of himself right in the middle of the city. And the purpose of that statue or that image of the king was to make clear that he was now in charge and that he demanded allegiance of all the people. Well, God's purpose is to create a world filled with people who rightly image Him. Who display His character, who display His righteousness, and who worship Him even among a pagan world. So ultimately, God's purpose is to have a world brimming with people who are rightly reminding the nations, that he is in charge. He's always had this purpose, that all the nations would understand he's the king. Now, of course, we know Adam does not do this well. He falls. He does not image God. He does not take dominion. In fact, he allows His wife, who he was called to lead and protect, to have dominion over his family, he allows her to be tempted to fall into sin. And then he himself, of course, is responsible and falls into sin, casting the world into sinful disobedience. But the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3 does not change God's purpose. It's not as if God had to go to plan B. He's sovereign. This was always part of his plan. And therefore, even though things may be complicated because of sin, this creation, commission, never changes. Ultimately, we see the the results of this sinfulness, that people who are called to take dominion all of a sudden start to try to make things about themselves. We see that every thought, every action is deemed sinful in God's eyes, and therefore, what's he do? He brings a great flood. And he um, saves just a particular people. And then we see throughout um, the early parts of Genesis that these people come together and they try to rebel against God. They try to exalt themselves in the Tower of Babel in order that they may show dominion as if they are in charge and they deserve the glory. There's a popular movie out right now called Napoleon. And I think it's a great example of the sinful effects upon, upon this dominion mandate. That Napoleon, who is uh, notorious for being this short little French man, who sought to conquer the nations, not for the glory of God, but for his own glory, was overambitious to the point that he gets to Waterloo, and he literally has the three most powerful nations in Europe up against his sole army. Something like 400,000 men against his 100,000. And yet he thinks, 
with his ego in charge, I can do this. And he gets routed. And we see this same sinful effect upon the dominion mandate playing out over and over and over again to where no one man can take charge over all the world in this fallen state. Now, thankfully, um, here in our country, our founding fathers understood this Christian mandate to image God rightly. And therefore, when they had the opportunity um, even um, to, to influence their country, they understood that there ought to be a separation of powers. And following World War II, interestingly enough, when America all of a sudden becomes the most powerful nation in the history of the world, they wisely don't try to make an empire everywhere that they know they cannot control. But instead, they make a deal with the nations. And they say, we'll patrol your oceans if we can trade with you. And then we'll stay to ourselves and you can trade with us because we know that empires have historically not worked because we are a fallen people. Now, unfortunately, we see over and over again that these individuals who are trying to take dominion are not doing so for God's glory, but instead for their own glory. So then God says there is hope, though. He says that even in the midst of this sinful rebellion in Genesis 3.15, that he is going to give hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, the devil, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So even within this fallen nature, God gives the promise of a redeemer. This one who will be the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the snake and will multiply God's image throughout the world in the way that Adam failed to do. He goes on in Genesis chapter 12 and he redeems a pagan moon worshiper named Abram. Not because Abram was more worthy than the other pagans, but out of God's own good pleasure. And he promised This pagan, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So this promised seed of the woman is now going to come through the lineage, through the line of the people of Abraham. And God promises to make a specific nation through Abraham that is called to be a light among the other nations. And for a time they do this well. So you think about Joseph for example, who gets exiled to Egypt and becomes a prince there. And all of a sudden the people of Egypt are seeing Joseph blessed by this God that they do not know. And then God redeems his people that have multiplied as slaves throughout Egypt for hundreds of years. And then he says to them in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God moves beyond this one man in Adam and redeems an entire nation. For himself, And he calls them to be a light to the Gentiles. 
so that he might show his character and glory through the blessings that he bestows upon Israel. And for a time, especially in the kingdom of David and Solomon, we start to see the blessings of God upon his people. And we start to see them and the wisdom that they receive, the blessings that they receive being a blessing to the people around them. For example, we read in 2 Kings 4, all the peoples of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. The surrounding peoples are benefiting from God's blessing upon Israel. 1 Kings 8 says that Solomon is creating the temple for a specific purpose to fulfill this dominion mandate that God had given all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. 1 Kings 8.43 says, um, Solomon said that the temple exists so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And as Solomon dedicates the temple, he's doing it not just for Israel's sake, but as 1 Kings 8 says, that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We are created to worship. G.K. Chesterton said that when men cease to worship the one true God, they don't start to worship nothing. They don't cease to worship, but they start to worship everything else. And man are the nations good at idolatry. There are nations out there with literally millions of gods. Like in Hindu Egypt, or Hindu um, India. And you think about it, there are millions of demons who want to be worshipped. They want to receive the praise that only God is due. They want to interrupt his creation commission and his project. And they want to receive the glory. And man are the nations quick to give them what they want. And yet here, we're starting to see a little glimpse of God reaching out through Israel to make his name known. We could talk about Jonah, for example, being sent to proclaim um, repentance to the people of Nineveh. And by God's grace, they repent. But unfortunately, we don't see this consistently through Israel. Now, we see God's heart for Israel. We see God's heart in David, for example, in the Psalms. The Psalms are replete with showing us this purpose of God. For example, Psalm 67 May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And why should God be so gracious to David and to his people as he prays here? So that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. This is the purpose. Psalm 72 echoes the same thing. May the kingdom have dominion from sea to sea. From rivers, uh, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. This is God's purpose. Now, unfortunately, Israel's future kings... Fail just like Adam failed. They do not bring the light 
of God to the nations, but instead they become like the nations and their idolatry. The prophet Isaiah comes up and he says that the people of Israel are going to be taken out of the land because they're not serving the purpose for the land, which is to be a light to the nations and to glorify God within them. There's a wonderful blog post on the website of the missions organization I work for, Reaching and Teaching, by a pastor named Sam Amadi, um, talking about God's heart for the nations. And I took a lot of inspiration for this sermon from that particular blog post, but he says this in one of the posts. He says, The prophets spoke about a day when God would rescue Israel from exile in a new exodus from Babylon. This final act of salvation would restore the nation of Israel, reinstate the Davidic king, and usher in the kingdom of God. But even here, God's heart for all people shines from the pages of Scripture. God won't just redeem the nation of Israel from exile. He'll include Gentiles in this great act of salvation too. It's incredible. Listen to this stunning prophecy from the book of Isaiah. That he's not planning just to redeem his people Israel. Who have always been, when you read his people in the Old Testament, you think Israel. But listen to this in Isaiah chapter 19 verses 23 and 25. In that day, in the day of God's salvation, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third With Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. Saying blessed be Egypt my people. And Assyria the works of my hands. And Israel my inheritance. Egypt my people. Assyria the works of my hands. God's not going to let the failures of Adam. Or of Israel. Stop. His stated purpose of redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Absolutely incredible that God loves and has a plan for pagan peoples in Egypt and the evil Assyrians, the idolatrous demon worshipers from all over the world who were in darkness just as each of us were as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Yet, there is hope. For all the earth. Ultimately, when the Old Testament ends, we understand from these prophecies that there is hope. There's an anticipation that God will do something to make things right. But there's mystery. How exactly is he going to accomplish this purpose? So we've seen the promise, we've seen the prophecies, and that brings us to the prestige. Now, as I mentioned before, the prestige is when the mystery of a magic trick is finally revealed. And most often, if you guys have seen um, any of those shows that explain how magic tricks are done, after you learn about it, you're just kind of like, oh, that's, that's disappointing. I can remember when um, my wife Heather, Heather and I were on our honeymoon. We went to this um, magic show. And the magician asked 
if anybody there was either were either newlyweds or engaged. And I can't remember exactly, but I feel like I wanted to raise my hand, and then I thought better of it, and so I didn't. But a few people raised their hands, and he sent the husbands out of the room. And then, I mean, this is probably a room of 250 people. And he told everybody, now listen to me. I'm going to say a couple of jokes that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. But everybody here is going to laugh. And then when those husbands see that everybody else is laughing, even though they don't get the first joke and they may not laugh, once you guys start to continue to laugh at each of my jokes, they're going to start to have a smile on their face. And then by the time I get to the third or fourth joke, they're going to laugh alongside everybody else because of the social pressure. He tells the first joke, I look over at them, and they're like, no laugh. Second joke, they start to get a little smile on their face. Third joke, everybody's laughing so hard that they join in with the laughter. And I was so embarrassed for those men. And so I've taught my kids ever since, you don't laugh unless it's actually funny. (laughs) They didn't know the prestige. They didn't know the secret to the trick. Now, thankfully... This particular prestige, when the mystery is revealed of how God is going to do this amazing work of saving a people for himself, when this mystery is revealed, it's awe-inspiring. The fact that, as Isaiah chapter 53 says, that God's going to accomplish the feat of making Egypt his people, of making the Assyrians sit at his table, of redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that he's going to do that through one man. And not just any man, but that God himself is going to do what we could never do for ourselves. That he's going to enter into human history in the form of a child. And he's going to live a perfect life. And he's going to suffer on the cross. He's going to serve his people all for the purpose of redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then he's going to rise from the dead, ascend to on high, and he's going to rule and reign forevermore. forevermore. He's going to rescue the nations from, from their idolatry by being judged for their idolatry. He'll save them from their sin by suffering for their sin. And he's going to give people from every nation an opportunity to stand before God Because he stands in their place under the judgment of God. From the very beginning of the New Testament, Jesus' heart for the Gentiles is revealed. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, reads this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised son of David, who, like Psalm 72 guaranteed, will bring all nations under his reign. He's the son of Abraham, the promised seed from Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent and will bless all families of the earth through his blood. And then throughout the Gospels, We see these amazing interactions with Gentiles. People who are far off from the kingdom. People who even call themselves dogs like the Canaanite woman. Because they understood that they didn't receive the blessings of the people of Israel. We see wise men from the east come and pay homage to this newborn king in Matthew chapter 2. 
These are pagans who understood the significance of this birth. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals this Roman centurion and says to him, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Incredible. And then in Matthew 15, as I mentioned, a Canaanite woman, this Gentile who understood herself to be apart from the kingdom, expresses faith in this king of Israel. And Jesus saves her. Jesus' last act before leaving the earth is to give a restatement of God's original commission. He calls all of his disciples, telling them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And then he calls them to go forth and to make disciples from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and promising us that he'll be with us always. In the same way that God called Adam and Eve to take dominion, And to multiply and to be fruitful. Jesus gives us the same commission. Go and make disciples. Multiply yourselves. I have all authority on earth. He's got dominion. We don't have to worry about whether or not this plan is going to be successful. Why? Because it's not our plan. It's his. And we get the privilege of knowing the the result Of this mystery. That Jesus is going to do what he says. That where Adam failed. Where Israel failed. This new Adam will not fail. He's going to take dominion. He's going to rescue his bride. He's going to purify her. He's going to preserve her. And he's going to populate a whole new creation. With people who rightly image him. And remind the nations that he's king. You see, Christian, this is your calling. You're called. I can tell you, I can tell you right now what the will of God is for your life. You may be wondering, should I get married? Should I get a job? Where should I work? Where should I live, etc.? Here's the overarching principle of God's will for your life. And the reason I can tell you is because it's crystal clear in the scriptures. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. The purpose of your life is to become more And more like Christ the King. Why? Because that's our purpose. To image Christ among all nations. In the same way that those pagan kings would put up that statue right in the middle of that newly conquered territory. So that people knew they were in charge. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Put up the image of Christ so that everyone around you knows Jesus is King. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this continuing. Local churches are formed in the nations, starting at Pentecost. When Jews from all over come speaking different languages, and yet they come and they're saved, and they understand the gospel. They understand the gospel in their own language, and they're saved, and they're sent back out. Ultimately, God has chosen To create local churches, embassies of the kingdom in every tribe, tongue, and nation 
to proclaim the glories of Christ. I just recently got back from Mexico where I visited the campus of an organization called um, RI, just for security reasons, I won't say the name. And their whole purpose is to train up um, missionaries to go to unreached people groups. So these mostly young people in their 20s go to this campus in Mexico. They live in another culture for 10 months. They learn the basics of learning language. They do exercise. They have their phones taken away. They have no access to the internet. It's like boot camp for missionaries. And they do all this to prepare themselves to go to hard to reach places because they understand these places are hard, that these places are unreached because they're hard to reach. It's hard to live there. And visiting with these young people and hearing their stories just reminded me so much of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would leave the glories of heaven and come to a place where it's hard to live. That he would live like um, like a poor man where even the fox, foxes who have dens, he would not even have a place to lay his head. And he would suffer and he would die for his people. That's what our missionaries are doing all around the world. They're imaging Christ in the same way. That's how you receive the gospel, friend. People suffered in order to translate the Bible, to maintain the gospel. They suffered to bring the gospel. I saw a chart of the pilgrims um, who were on the Mayflower when they came over for the first Thanksgiving. And out of approximately 100 people that were on the ship, less than half of them survived the journey, much less what it took to actually establish um, colonies here. Why did they do that? So that they could rightly image Christ in the way that the Bible told them to do. They suffered in order to maintain the purity of the scriptures. The gospel got to us because people imaged Christ rightly. And now we're called to not drop the ball. We're called to continue this process. That we would continue to proclaim this message of reconciliation that our local churches, week by week, would make the gospel visible and that people from different nations and ethnicities all over the world would gather into local churches and just as Isaiah prophesied, would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they would no longer have enmity and hostility towards one another, but they would be one people in Christ. A glorious picture of heaven to come. So how do we best bear his image? Commit to love one another. Serve one another. Care for one another. Bear each other's burdens. Help each other to persevere for heaven. Understand that Christ, this new Adam, has all authority in heaven and on earth. He calls us to make disciples. And guess what? He's really good at producing people who bear his image. And so we don't have to worry that this is all on us. Christ is working through us. He calls us in John chapter 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Speaking of his disciples. This is our calling. I can remember um, before we moved to Ecuador, it was just a couple of weeks, maybe even a week, before we were scheduled to move. And I had just finished up my first semester of doctoral classes. And I was driving back home 
And I started to have the worst stomach ache ever. And I started to think to myself, I just had like um, Skyline chili or something like that. And I just drove by Skyline yesterday, and it was packed. I was like, man, people really love Skyline. I can't eat there ever again. Because as I was driving home, I started to have these stomach aches. And I thought to myself, if this doesn't get any better by the time I get to the exit ramp where I would normally turn left to go home, I'm going to turn right and go to the hospital. And I had to turn right. And come to find out that I needed a new gallbladder. <laughs> and so the, the doctor told me, you're going to need gallbladder surgery. Uh, we can get you in uh, a week from today. And I thought to myself, well, number one, I can't handle this for a week. Number two, I got to move to Ecuador. So I'm going to need something to happen uh, to where I don't wait for a week. And by God's grace, they said, well, there may be another doctor that could do the surgery. The other guy is all booked up. So they gave me the number of another doctor. I called him. He told me to come into his office, went into his office, and he said, listen, I'm all booked up uh, for the next two weeks, but I can get you in tomorrow morning before all of my other scheduled surgeries. I'll come in early and do this surgery. And the reason I'm going to do this is because I so appreciate what you're doing for God's glory. He was a Christian, Christian doctor, Christian surgeon. Um, amazingly, I don't remember him at all after that. He did the surgery. I don't remember seeing him. There were many people involved in that surgery, not just him, but the doctors who prepared me, the anesthesiologist. The people that I remember are the nurses who held my hand and comforted me before this surgery. But they all had their part to play in order to get my gallbladder out so that I could get to the mission field. They all had their part to play. You all have your parts to play in this grand purpose of God. To reach the nations and to multiply his image bearers bearers to the ends of the earth. So, find your part. Be a godly man. Be a godly woman. Grow in your sanctification. Be a faithful husband or wife right where you're at. If you're not married yet, prepare yourself to be that godly husband or wife. You're not going to get to the altar and all of a sudden say I do and become this awesome Christian husband. It doesn't work like that. Just like missionaries don't get on a plane. They arrive in their location. All of a sudden they're great missionaries. It takes preparation. Prepare yourself now. Be a faithful father. Be a faithful mother by bringing up your children in the care and admonition of the world of, of the Lord. Bring them to church. Develop in them a Christian worldview. Tell them that Christ is king. Bear his image in your home. Bear his image in the church. Be diligent and outstanding at your vocation. Bear his image in your workplace. Let them know that Christ is king. Proclaim the gospel of reconciliation. That this mystery has been revealed. And that people right here in Bullock County can be saved. Gentiles right here can be included in the kingdom. Be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Be a faithful church member and work together with the saints right here at Bullet Lick to make disciples both here and to the ends of the earth. God has called us all to participate in this grand plan of conquering the nations for his glory, for the name of Christ. So I pray that as we celebrate Christmas, you would keep this in mind. That this is God's desire. And we pray that he would become the desire of every nation. 
that people would give him the worship that he is due and that they would receive the joy that comes with it. That they would turn from their idolatry to worshiping the one true king. And that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. That Jesus would receive the glory that he alone is due. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment as Dr. Warwick comes forward. Remember the purpose for which you were created. Adam failed. Israel failed. But Jesus will never fail. And he wants to use you and this church to reach the nations for Christ. And as we go to the missions lunch after this, I pray that you would see there are many ways for you to be involved. We're going to continue to talk to you about ways to be involved in the coming months uh, and, and coming weeks. But I would just encourage you, understand that ultimately you are called to image Christ, to make his righteousness and his image known to the ends of the earth, starting right here where you are for his glory. Amen. Dr. Ward, come.